Hi, I'm Mark Cuban, publisher of industry magazine Inside Film. I'm Jackie Keys, the editor of Inside Film. We're self-appointed experts in content and in making each other laugh. Welcome to our podcast on the tools, where we recommend things you should watch, listen to, read or scroll through. This week, we're going to talk about podcasts, The Last Days of August. Documentary, The Raincoat Killer. The book, Crushing It. And YouTube channel, Pasta Grannies. Um, we're here again. We're here again. Fourth app. Very excited. How's your week been? <laughs> Long, wet, boring. Are <laughs> <laughs> you? It has been. Uh, the same. I'm looking forward to um, the holidays. They're just around the corner, so we're kind of on the home stretch. Are you going away? Well, as I mentioned in the previous episode, my parents have bought a farm. So, well, it's not really a farm, a property. So I'll be up there. Riding on the ride on lawn mower <laughs> with an Akubra hat on. What the about Kubra you? Um, I think I'm just going to stay in the city. I don't mind it when everyone leaves. It's, it's no nice. Traffic. It's quiet. Yeah, it's good. I hate now that this COVID is over. There's traffic everywhere. I'm not used to it. And now we have places to be, people to see. Yeah, and, and obligations. I don't like it. I want to go no, back to the safe cocoon of before. <laughs> That's yeah, I'm the same. So what have you been listening to? Um, I thought I would talk about a podcast called The Last Days of August, which it's the only podcast I've listened to twice. I don't know why I listened to it twice, but I did enough because I found it so moving. Um, so it's created and hosted by the British journalist John Ronson, who you might know from like books like The Men Who Stare at Goats and The Psychopath Test. Um, it's hosted a few TV shows as well. But basically it's an investigation into the death of Canadian porn star August Ames who took her own life in 2017 when she was 23. And Ronson previously made a podcast called The Butterfly Effect, also with Audible, which I've also listened to, which is about, I guess, about how the internet changed the porn industry. So it took starts with an interview with the guy who created Pornhub. And so Ronson is pretty tuned into the porn world in the US. And he's also written a book that's called So You've Been Publicly Shamed, who basically he talks to people who've been cancelled on social media and the impact that that has on their lives moving forward. What, what do you mean cancelled on social media? You know, like basically, okay, they use the example of the woman who tweeted, she's in the book, she tweeted something saying, I'm going to South Africa, lol, hope I don't get AIDS, and put that on her Twitter <laughs> uh, to her 250 followers. When she got turned on her phone again in the 14 hours or however long the flight to Johannesburg was, she had basically, she was in news headlines, she'd lost her job, uh, yeah, basically Villa like, which like what a ignorant comment but her life was completely ruined and obviously if you google her name that comes up forever <laughs> um wow. so he talks to her he talks to monica Lewinsky in the book about what would have happened to her if that that stuff uh, like happened now he talks to a guy a journalist who writes i think it's an autobiography of bob dylan and writes fake makes quotes up and basically gets discovered um, and about what happens to his life from there. 
What do you mean he makes quotes? He steals quotes. He makes up things that Bob Dylan never said. (laughs) (laughs) It's like one quote. The rest of it is real, but for some reason he made up this one sort of meaningless quote and this mega fan of Bob Dylan, like goes crazy and, and cross-references it and can't find it anywhere and basically pulls apart this book, which I think there was maybe there was a few more quotes, but basically he, he made things up. There's another girl who she makes fun of a statue in the US, like a military statue, and she is all these people that are, are offended by her doing this and like veterans and things, and so she loses her job as well with just, dis- disabled children and Bronson sits with her and basically she works with this company to try to, if you Google her name, to try to make that not come up. So they build this new profile for her, which apparently happens for celebrities. So they, if you say something problematic, I guess they can erase it from Google. <laughs> but it's, you, really? it, it's like cost a lot of money but this girl did it because Ronson was exploring it and so they did it as a test so they created like blogs for her where she talked about cats and dogs and like silly things in the internet so that, that like with high seo so that the things about her making fun of these military statues were pushed down but yeah it's an interesting book but um but in terms of this going back to the last days of august i guess because he's looked at this sort of thing about how social imp- media can impact people's lives sort of makes him the perfect and he's investigated the porn world, it sort of makes him the perfect person to look at Ames's death because on the surface she seemed to commit suicide after she was sort of subject to this sort of Twitter pile-on. So basically Ames said that she didn't want to work with male performers who had also had sex with men on Twitter and she got this huge backlash. Um, she's bisexual herself but then she got all these accusations that she was homophobic um, including from lots of senior members of the porn industry. Um, and this includes like a like a pansexual performer telling her the world is waiting for your apology or for you to f- swallow a cyanide pill. Um, and then two days later she was dead. So wow. her husband, who also works in porn as like a director-producer, released this public statement saying like this bullying took her life and a, a big public letter and this causes this stir within the industry because uh and like he Ronson goes and interviews people that um said some of these comments to her and like one woman breaks down in tears because you know she thought what she said was wrong but she never intended for that to hurt Ames or to hurt August so anyway like Ronson initially he starts to think this will be like a really a straightforward story into social media but then as he talks to more and more people that know august um you start to get a more complete portrait of what was happening to her in the lead up to her death particularly learn more about kevin her husband who was a lot older than her and you know he's sort of all over the place like he's very emotional obviously about her dying but he's you get the sense that he was very controlling and you get he acted really strangely because she went missing before she was found dead and he acted really strangely during that time where she was missing um and he you find out he's had two previous marriages that also sort of ended badly for the women involved and you start to sort of draw these kind of questions marks around him even though you also sort of hear that he's 
grieving really but you you start so you start to wonder early on whether her death is really a suicide but like Ronson sort of says straight up early on that this podcast is it's not a murder mystery and he sort of snuffs that out it's not a true crime podcast so but what it sort of ends up actually being is sort of a portrait of August and it raises a lot of questions about mental health and the Me Too movement and I guess what it means to be believed and to also be heard like um like August was sexually abused when she was a child and she talked she talked about that through her career and like I guess things happen to her on porn sets that are sort of mishandled and or like that she was not comfortable with and then uh she talks to people she trusts and they I guess it doesn't they don't take it as seriously as they could have um it's not an easy listen but I guess it succeeds because Ronson and his producer Lena Mestizis they handle the story with lots of care like it's not sensationalized everyone they speak to they speak to with real humanity and it doesn't lean into stereotypes about the porn industry at at all like and it doesn't uh put forward that her story is like representative of the porn industry itself and you also hear them sort of grappling with the ethical decisions that they're making some of the interviews that they do and dragging up things from people's past like kevin's past and how as journalists that they have to like how difficult it can be to deal with some of this subject matter um but yeah so it's about seven episodes each is 30 minutes and you can listen to it pretty quickly it's really good um it's a few years old so it makes you wonder like i think the porn industry is probably one of those industries that's changed a lot in covid um you're not we weren't able to touch each other so then you see the rise of platforms like OnlyFans, and i guess well that's that's a question itself isn't it yeah it's almost like the commercialization of of um independent porn Porn. yeah i guess And, and i guess there's an argument that it you know, porn and OnlyFans sort of puts it, it can be empowering for sex workers. Suddenly, they're in control of their own career, which you know, in some of the the, the Butterfly Effect podcasts, was, you could tell that they you weren't necessarily in control of your own career. Um, but I do wonder, like, could, is that simplistic? Like, I follow. Um, I feel like we're always talking about sex on this podcast so far, but there is a sex worker that I follow on Instagram called Tilly Lawless. And I think she wrote about it in the Guardian as well, but she basically, she started on OnlyFans during the first COVID lockdown. And she said that it made her hate masturbation. Um, and I think well, I that's all you'd be doing. exactly. And I, I think I can imagine being on one of those platforms. It's like, even though you do have control over your output, you are suddenly need like these people can contact you all the time. You, you, they want to have a certain experience with you and you sort of need to be available to them. I don't know how much of that is on your own terms, but yeah. It's- but also what, what happens, you know, if you're younger, maybe naive, um, you know, can you erase your past or will it, will it come with you? I mean, it's a really, well, it's even, question. that's even not just for sex workers. It's like, there's like once you take a nude you might as well be ready to share that nude with the whole world because <laughs> you don't well, like it, I, uh, well hopefully you send it to people you trust but you know that person can send it and forward it on to anyone so yeah i don't know mm. just anyway, make sure i might i might set up my own you know only <laughs> I'll have all of two fans. The solution is <laughs> to only take nudes of yourself that you think are hot. 
So <laughs> that, I'd be proud. Well, that eliminates that. But I also think Every some. Photo. <laughs> no, I think like I think some of the stigma around that is is leave is going away. But then you do wonder about kids and having access to phones. And I thank the world that I was never. There were no phones with cameras when I was a teenager. <laughs> yeah. Or social media. I've been reading uh, a book, Crushing It, by Gary Vaynerchuk. Um, it's kind of more a work read, really, but Gary's written several books, including uh, bestseller Crush It and The Thank You Economy. Um, he's an entrepreneur and venture capitalist, and he's built a fairly successful business around his personal brand um, and, regard- and regarded as a wizard of social and digital media. For me as a publisher, and probably true uh, for most content creators is that I'm always looking for cut through. And you know as well, Jackie, I guess, you know, with the website, you know, uh, we're yeah. always looking at, you know, how to retain and grow audiences and audience insights. And I don't want to tell people like- to know how addicted I am to watching Google <laughs> Analytics. <laughs> but, you know, insights like what they like to read, where they like to hang out uh, when visiting our sites, how they consume our content, what technology they use to access our content, you know, their social media preferences, uh, and whether other articles or mastheads might be of interest to them, and also where they go when they leave our I don't know whether most people would be aware about how much actually information you can track on people, which is it's quite in-depth what you can gather through these analytics. Well, it is very in-depth. But, you know, I mean, the relationship, and, and Gary kind of highlights that uh, in his previous book that, you know, social media has kind of changed the relationship between organisations and customers, right? Mm. And so you can almost have that one-on-one experience. But in his book, and look, while um, most of the topics he covers are familiar, right, to me, he does make some interesting points and highlights, especially over the last 20 years, that the landscape has changed a lot. And look, I hate using the term disruption because it's just really another word for change. But he highlights that the old checks and balances have been removed and, and by that he refers to, you know, that once upon a time if you wanted to be discovered as an actor, you'd maybe need to move to Hollywood or if you wanted to become a filmmaker, you'd start by making short films or if your ambition was television or radio, you'd probably start your career in a regional broadcaster. And for musicians, you know, wanting to get signed, you'd get on the live band circuit and send demos to A&R executives and record companies hoping for a deal. And in his book, he talks about the internet and social media essentially doing away with industry gatekeepers uh, and giving creatives and artists unparalleled opportunity to communicate directly with potential audiences and exploit their followers. And, you know, of course, that doesn't mean that you'd be a great actor or a musician, as we've discovered. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, So anyway... It was kind of interesting, and I thought it was interesting because marketing is something that goes hand in hand um, with most creative endeavors. And some of these content creators on social media have phenomenal numbers of followers. So, out of curiosity, I spent, I think, last weekend examining some of the big names in social media, and the numbers are simply staggering. I guess one of the people that sort of stuck out for me is a TikToker by the name of Bella Porch. She was originally from the Philippines. Her shtick, besides being cute in a weird anime way, is basically she's just good at being cute. 
kind of makes her face do weird things and you know he's like a it's weird it's like an anime character but she's got 800,000 Twitter followers, um, more than 14 million Instagram followers, and over 84 million TikTok followers. Uh, and the TikTok likes are approaching 1.9 billion. And this all happened very quickly, I think, since the beginning of 2020. So I kind of followed her and, you know, had a look at her trajectory. I think she's just been signed to an agency in New York, and it appears that the managers are now attempting to morph her into a more vampy persona. She's released several music tracks. And look, she can sing, you know, they're obviously overly produced. You know, the film clips were, they, they appeared big budget. Um, I think there was some kind of deal with Warner Music Group. But interestingly, with all those numbers, they haven't performed as well as you might have thought they would. And so she kind of, I think, you know, sort of got to the mid-20s of the Billboard charts. And I don't know, it doesn't. You know, I was having a look at how many likes she got. It was interesting. And one of the things that Gary mentions in his book is authenticity is the number one rule in social media and that social media audiences are exceptionally exceptional at sniffing out fakes. Mm. So don't disrespect your audience. Be real. Um, and maybe, you know, maybe this is an example of that, you know, her shtick is being cute and it is that anime character and maybe this this managed morph isn't considered authentic or core to yeah, Ella's TikTok Yeah, it seems TikTok a bit of a persona. departure. Yeah, it is a departure. I think it's it's quite obvious. And, you know, it was, I kind of thought when I heard she was releasing a track that, you know, it would imagine having that audience, global audience. But then there's some other people I discovered, and there's one guy who's a 19-year-old Toronto-born digital content creator or entrepreneur, Josh Richards, who's already amassed, I think, 20, 25 million followers on TikTok, 7 million on Instagram, and about 2 million subscribers on YouTube. But he's he's founded Crosscheck Studios, a production company, with business, business partner Mark Gruen and former ICM agent Chris Sortel, uh, in partnership with Mark Warburg's Unrealistic Ideas. And they formed a Gen Z marketing agency called Hawks with a Z. And so they started this Animal Capital, which is a $15 million venture capital firm focused on backing startups. And they've co-founded Caffeine Drinks and launched they're launching a podcast series. So it's kind of interesting how some some of these TikTokers now and social media stars, if you want to call them that, uh, are moving away. But it's obvious that, you know, if you have the numbers, it doesn't actually mean success. You know, some of the other things that he explains in the book is that, you know, the other sort of points is that you need passion and patience. And he kind of joins... It's a little bit dry, but look, it was filled with interesting anecdotes and he manages to pull pieces of the social media puzzle together, which for me at least has given me some new ideas in exploitation. <laughs> what do you mean by that? <laughs> Just, you know, you've got audiences and, you know, you're sort of always trying to exploit them somehow, aren't you? Mm. You're pushing content onto them. and But it's, uh, it's interesting about that crossover from social media into more traditional mediums and yeah it's like sometimes it, it doesn't necessarily translate or the audience I don't know it's it, it's are you reaching the, I guess the good thing about social media is that you can suddenly 
if you have a particular niche, you can suddenly reach that niche throughout the world and grow this huge audience. But that, does that work? And if you're trying to squish it into some a main more of a mainstream platform, but you know, also are they are they loyal followers? I mean, you know, you might like something and follow them. Yeah, well, I can't tell you how many things I mindlessly follow and then they appear on my feed and I'm like, what is this? Where did this yeah, come from? Who are you? But. <laughs> Look, I think Warner, who was it? I think it was Warner Music Group in conjunction with somebody else have created a social media platform for their stars or the the super performers in social media and they break it down. It's kind of a bit vague in terms of their categorization, but, you know, they've got people who who cook. You know, there's music and then there's... uh, you know, performance or content or comedy. And it's very interesting that now they're recognising that and creating these these entities that dovetail into, so, you know, they've got, I think, a relationship with a studio and they've got a relationship with, you know, Warner Music Group. So they can kind of take this brand and sort of push it out. But I, I don't know, I can't really recall, I did have a bit of a search, but I don't know how many of these really big social media stars have actually broken mainstream. Do you know of any? Hmm. Uh, well, there's that TikToker Addison Ray was cast in a Netflix film, I think. That's just the first person that comes to mind if we talk about TikTok. I'm sure there are others. I mean, in Australia there's people like, uh, gosh, I'm having a mental like Kate McLennan and Kate McCartney, they started the catering show on YouTube, and that was picked up by oh, yeah. ABC the second season, um, and I think it also sold to the US and that um, they're making a show for Amazon now. So there are examples of, I guess, just creating things for social media that then get picked up by more tradition. I think there's quite a lot of examples of that. There's also, I think, the girls behind Broad City was the same thing. They create, started that as a a web series and then Amy Poehler saw it and then it became, she picked it up and it became a, a television show. Um, there's other examples as well. Awkward Black Girl became Insecure on HBO. So, but there's a, those are sort of YouTube um, shows becoming television shows, but I don't know about personalities crossing over well, to become podcasts something else. Podcasts have also become shows oh, too, Oh, yeah, there's plenty of examples of that. When will, so they, look- when will they make a TV show of us? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Time's coming. Um, so look, it was a really interesting, and I think if you're a content creator and, and marketing is part of that process, then it's probably a really good book. And he, you know, has a, a bunch of other books where he talks about social media or sort of other aspects of social media, and breaks it down. And he, look, he's interesting, and you know, it's a little bit dry, but worth a read. I was also watching a true crime documentary, uh, The Raincoat Killer, which is a Korean documentary. I'm a big fan of Asian cinema, especially South Korean film. I don't know if you knew, but earlier this year, Netflix announced that it would spend $500 million on South Korean content, and they've done well. Korean film industry has done exceptionally well. Like, you know, historically, The Parasite is an Academy Award Best Picture winner. Sweet Home has about 22 million households that tune into this this horror series. And I'm waiting for, they're about to release a sci-fi series called The Silent Sea. And obviously, 
I think as part of that slate earlier this year, the funding of the five hundred million Squid Game has been a global phenomenon. It's the most popular um, show on Netflix ever. Incredible. Yeah. Um, you know, but they've been. You know, there, there was the host um, trained to Busan that zombie thing. Yeah, I mean, so there's like it, five, they release like five hundred films a year in Korea within their own domestic market, and they have like a box office share of like fifty percent. So they're very Korean, like. But yeah, now you're seeing it cross over to the rest of the world, and like K dramas are huge as well. Oh, K pop. I mean, look, I think they've done except exceptionally well, and you know. They started, I think, Netflix, their first Korean production uh, was the zombie, the period zombie thriller series Kingdom. Have you watched that? No. You have to watch it. It's fantastic. It's a zombie film with a lot of twists. Production's amazing. Uh, I actually might get that back up, I think. Um, (laughs) Anyway, so... They're, they've done quite well. They've invested $500 million, um, into the Korean film industry. However, every storm cloud has a silver lining, but perhaps in this instance every silver lining has a storm cloud because <laughs> Netflix are copying lots of flack from their subscribers asking why their subtitling is so shit. And I concur, it's not very good. How do you know um, you don't speak Korean? <laughs> no, but the subtitle, in terms of how it's placed and easy to read, it's so clunky. It's quite I, weird. I don't um, know. Subtitles are not normally ever. like if. Well, then they're not good. Yeah. Not on Netflix. I think they need to focus on their subtitling. <laughs> um, I watch everything with subtitles on, almost. <laughs> so the Raincoat Killer is, uh, is also part of that sort of original Netflix slate, I think. It's a true crimes documentary. It's a fascinating series, not only because of the subject and rawness of the subjects, but also because of the social commentary uh, on the state of Korea. So, you know, 97, the economy tanked before rebounding, and they kind of rebound with loans that largely benefited the, the rich. But in that process, they removed the safety net for the general public, and there was mass unemployment and homelessness and hopelessness. I actually did see some footage, and they in this documentary they show some of that footage, and there's people like in soup kitchens and living outdoors. It was just, it was horrific, and so it was out of that hopelessness and that kind of scene, out of that deep abyss that the serial serial killer emerges. And it all begins with a triple murder of a grandmother, her son, and daughter-in-law inside a home located in Seoul's wealthy, one of Seoul's wealthy neighbourhoods. But almost before police could establish a motive, those murders were being connected in uh, to a similar case in another town. Anyway, there's more murders, uh, they become more brazen, and suddenly they seem to lack any consistency with the previous killings. It was like he just there was no no rhyme or reason for it. It's really interesting because the crew you're you're taken on this journey, right? It's emotionally raw, and unlike most true crime documentaries I've watched, you're there with the police, sharing their frustration, and also sharing their fear that's gripping the city. And these guys are like really hardened. I don't know. It's just <laughs> they're they're career police and. Um, and the, pe- the personnel that they, the police personnel that they interviewed, the raincoat killer, uh, older now, in some cases even retired, but the brutality of this case has stayed with them. And there's little doubt that they've all been deeply affected by what they've witnessed. And there are some really moving moments in this, and 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 a lot of humanity. And one of the scenes that really stands out 
for me is um, a forensic investigator attempts to lift prints. They find an area in this forest where all the victims have been buried and they don't know who they are. And so she goes in to lift prints who of these the victims who are in advanced state of decomposition oh. desperately just to be able to reunite the victims with their family. And it's just gut-wrenching. And this woman, you know, just over and over and over. And, and she finally does it. She gets all the fingerprints and those those victims uh, eventually reunited with their families and were able to be laid to rest. Fantastic. It's like just, look, it's great. Um, it had a lot of pace. It was kind of gritty. The characters are amazing. You know, I mean, I have re-watched some of those episodes several times, partially because of the uh, subtitling. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, in this, this, what was interesting also was that when Netflix announced this $500 million in investing in production in South Korea, they usually don't release the number of subscribers in territories and they revealed that in Korea at the moment they currently have over 3.8 million subscribers, which is interesting. So obviously, you know, the money's not in subscription dollars. It's it's more in the content and being able to stream that content globally. But, look, I really, really rate it and I think it's worth a watch. It's probably one of the best um, documentaries I've watched in a long time. It's interesting because they can, I guess, one thing that's a theme in Parasite and in Squid Game is like this wealth discrepancy in Korea and also, uh, but it, it sounds like almost that this documentary is sort of set within that, well, it's exploring those issues as well, like the... Well, it's after that. So yeah. I think when the economy imploded, that was 97. This, the killer, uh, the serial killer was 2003, 2004. But, you know, and I did follow up and read some things about this period because I got quite interested. And I think that a lot of the businesses and also a lot of the uh, wealth is in Korea is held by families. So, yeah, it's not equally shared and there is definitely a class issue, I think. Mm. On a lighter note, <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to talk about a YouTube channel called Pasta Grannies. And in researching it for this podcast, I also found out there is a cookbook which I will subsequently be purchasing. But um, I love food and I love cooking. So, and I guess last year during lockdown, I'm, like everyone else in the world, I became obsessed with cooking really ornate dishes. And during that time, I followed a lot of different chefs on Instagram. But then I, I somehow stumbled across this one which isn't chefs, but it is exactly what it sounds like, Italian grannies making pasta. And in each episode of this show, which is about five to ten minutes long, we meet a different Italian nonna who teaches us how to make a traditional pasta dish, dish from scratch. And I mean like by hand rolling the dough out, <laughs> creating the shells by hand. Um, but it, not only does watching this show sort of inspire you to get in the kitchen, the women are inspiring as well. And I guess most are in their 90s, some are over 100, and they're like energetic, wow. energetically kneading dough. And they're also, a lot of them are working from 
their own grandmother's recipes or recipes that are specific to their region of Italy. So they're, they're recipes that are hundreds of years old, basically. Are they from a particular region or they're just scattered from all over? Well, this, so it's, it's this British woman who sort of travels around Italy. Um, there's, there's so many episodes. But, um, yeah, so she wanted to document the tradition of making pasta by hand because it's, it's disappearing in Italy. I mean... The videos are pretty lo-fi, but it is one of those things as well where I'm waiting for someone to pick this up as a real television show because I think I would love it if they kept it as it sort of as it is, if they kept this authentic feel. Because you could bring like a travel aspect into it as well. Like you could have every episode in a different region of Italy. Like I think it would be so interesting. But um yeah, I guess like part of why this resonates with me as well, because my grandfather used to make pasta from scratch. Like my family isn't Italian, but my papa made friends with lots of Italian migrants in Melbourne in the 50s and they taught him how to make pasta and sauce and so he carried that on wow. into our family. And so do you have any of those secret recipes? See, I think I was too young and now he's, I never asked him for those before he died, but I think my cousins might know. But, like, yeah, now, but watching Pasta Grannies, I sort of feel like he was cheating a bit because I always thought you needed a pasta machine. <laughs> These grannies yeah. do everything by hand, but yeah, by hand. but yeah, we used to make pasta a lot if it was at Christmas or if we all went away together as a big family. Um, but I feel like I was a lot. There was a lot of red wine in the sauce, and I feel like there was a lot of red wine drunk in the process by the adults because it, <laughs> it was always like the kids, like us, who seemed to have to carry these enormous sheets and to hang them over the table <laughs> to dry. <laughs> But, yeah, like this is also, I guess, one of those. I've become obsessed with a few different travel things during lockdown and this was kind of one of them. Like I feel like I just want to go to Italy and escape my life. My first first girlfriend was Italian and her father was like he was a chef. He worked for I think it was like some Italian leagues club and he was known as the Sauce King. And he was Louis Gino was his name. Louis Gino. And he was, I was so in love with him because he was, we would make sauce. He'd buy all these tomatoes and it was all by hand. And I was more, more sad about leaving him than <laughs> that time because he was such a nice man. And, you know, he had, he even set up an external kitchen and, you know, everything was by hand. And, uh, Amazing. You know, and we'd, and he'd bury he'd make his bottles of sauce and then bury them in the garden for a while. What's the reasoning behind that? I don't know. Um, and he'd leave them there for a cool? while. Is it because it's cool? No, no, he'd, he'd, um, he'd do all the sauce, bottle it, and then in a big drum would boil the sauce in the bottles and then would wait for it to cool and then would bury it and would bury it there for a while and then clean the bottles and bring them inside. And the sauce was, I mean, dinner at their house was always to die for. <laughs> oh, my God. I miss him so much. Yeah, so good Italian food. You can't beat it. No, it's the best. And, I, you know, nothing makes you feel better than carbohydrates and olive oil. So. <laughs> <Pretty true. laughs> hey, I think we've run out of time again. We have. Um, I will see you next week. See you next week. Bye. Bye.